0: Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. I want to sincerely thank all of the supporters of this podcast, the people, again, who send wonderful emails and let me know and let my team know how impactful and important the content has been and just how much it has strengthened them to hear other people telling their stories, stories they can relate to, stories about things they thought had only happened to them. And to everyone who has supported it in every way, I thank you sincerely. I want to also thank our subscribers who give $10 or more a month. And if I mispronounce any of your names, please let me know. It is not my intention. I do my best. Please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination to help support the show so it can stay on the air. We put out episodes every week, and I want to be able to continue doing that. So please partner with us to have it continue. Patreon.com slash indoctrination. And a special shout out to Catherine, Kikesi, Lynn, Julia, Trimian, Elizabeth, Sheila, Holly, Tammy, David, Apostababe, Donna, Jessica, Mislav, Michael, Zofia, Kathy, Audrey, Alex, Ken, Katrina, Sarah, Christina, Brianna, Ludwig, Scott, Peter and Cynthia, Linda, Jolie, and Camu. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I am so excited to have part one of my conversation with Stacy Stukin and Philip D. Slip. Stacy Stukin is an arts and culture journalist who grew up in Los Angeles. She was a contributing editor at Yoga Journal and she's also written about yoga for the Los Angeles Times and Time Magazine. Over the years, she's had the opportunity to write about and practice many different forms of the practice, including kundalini yoga as taught by Yogi Bhajan. This past July, she wrote a comprehensive investigative piece for Los Angeles Magazine about the current sexual misconduct allegations against Yogi Bhajan and the subsequent reckoning within the 3HO community. And Philip Deislip. Philip is a PhD candidate in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of California in Santa Barbara. And he holds an MA from the University of Iowa. He has written articles for several academic journals, including Asia* and the Journal of Yoga Studies, and pieces for numerous popular venues, such as Yoga Journal and Tricycle. Philip was a member of 3HO for about a decade after taking a kundalini yoga class at his undergraduate college in the mid-1990s. He left in 2008 and went on to conduct research into the origins of Yogi Bhajan's kundalini yoga that culminated in the groundbreaking 2012 article, From Maharaj to Mahantantra, for Sikh Formations. He has Many articles that he's written, and I will offer the links in the ads for this show. I am very excited to have you here, part one today of my conversation with Stacy and Philip. Here they are now. I want to tell you how happy I am to have both of your perspectives on an issue that has actually been affecting so many people more than people realize for so many years. I think when suddenly stories like this are becoming uncovered and becoming revealed, not only is it fascinating and disturbing, I think, to the general public, but it's very healing to the people who have experienced It themselves or things like it themselves, where I think a lot of people think that people are just not going to understand what they've been through or are not going to believe them. And part of my experience in working with some of the people who were in 3HO years ago was that one of the things that drew them in and kept them feeling that they were in a safe space were the visuals. That people were dressed all in white and things looked very pure. So as we know, as we've talked about here on this podcast in the past, people are swayed by visuals. And that really worked against people who wanted to talk about the darker sides of the people who were all dressed in white. So Stacey, would you like to be the first to introduce yourself? Sure, thanks for having us. Um,
1: my name is Stacey Stukin. I am a journalist based here in LA, I'm raised in Los Angeles. I've covered the yoga world for many years. I'm also a yoga practitioner. Um, I've written about yoga for Time Magazine, the LA Times. I was a contributing editor at Yoga Journal for many years. And um, I actually have been wanting to write about 3HO for a long, long time. And I finally had the opportunity during the pandemic to write a pretty... um, major piece for Los Angeles Magazine. I I had written about it in bits and pieces over the years, more from kind of the yoga, fitness, wellness perspective, rather than an investigative piece.
0: Right. Okay. Well, thank you. And I'm very happy for the work that you're doing, because I think one of the things that bothers me about the whole kind of cultish or abusive side of things is that people are kind of usually going towards experiences that make them Feel good that are a departure from the stress in their lives, that could be in an effort to get healing, to be with kind of community where they're going to be kind of exposing themselves emotionally in so many ways, but in the hope that in those spaces that will be safe to do. But when that's taken advantage of, you're really connecting with people with this false sense of trust and then really hitting them while they're down while they're vulnerable. So I think there's sort of an extra cruelty about that. So I thank you, Stacy, for your work on this. And we will make sure to put a link to your work as well so people can check it out and the other work that you've done. And I think your perspective of having been involved also in the yoga community and as a yoga practitioner really helps to solidify for people that you're not saying this whole world is bad that yoga is bad, it's certainly not. But through your experiences, and also through your research, are able to help people discern the distinctions, where it's healthy, where it's not, which I think gives you a great vantage point. So thank you. Now, Philip D. Slip, I would love for you to also introduce yourself for a moment.
2: Okay, thank you. And thank you for having us. My name is Philip Dislip. I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. My research focuses on Asian metaphysical and marginal religious traditions in modern America. I was involved in 3HO for about 10 years. Um, When I was an undergraduate, my very first week, I took a free yoga class. Kundalini yoga is taught by Yogi Bhajan. And I developed a a serious personal practice. Um, I was trained as a kundalini yoga teacher. I spent many years living in proximity with 3HO communities. In 2008, I began graduate school. And as I developed CHOPs as a researcher, I kind of pointed the lens back on kundalini yoga. And I did research on the origins of that practice, which um, was published in an article for an academic journal, Sikh Formations in 2012. So um, I have a personal background with 3HO and also an academic background. And as Stacy and I can talk about, um, you kind of enter into this dynamic loop when you write and publish on the group. And then what you publish, the story becomes part of the larger story and changes the dynamics.
0: Thank you, Philip, for being open to talk about your experience. And I know we're going to talk more about your actual experiences to whatever degree you want to talk about them. But also that you are saying that you had an experience with this particular community. I think it's very, very powerful. You have that kind of visceral knowing about the community and about the conflict that people are feeling, people who were tied in with it once things are revealed i think that's a very important piece to this as well as being able to then study how this all happens and i think being able to understand it when you can do that research and present that research then you can uncover for people what happened there what went wrong and i think that's helpful even though it's hard to look at and sometimes shocking to the system especially for people who were in the group and didn't know what was happening behind closed doors. A lot of people, when they're involved in groups that turned out to be ones where the leader is doing something very kind of culty, I use that term not so broadly here, but specifically, that I think within a cult you have a system where the rules only apply to the followers and not the leader, which is what was happening here. Then a lot of problems exist, and they exist in the shadows. And when you see it, when that gets uncovered, it's suddenly very hard to want to be part of that community anymore. And I think a lot of people also feel conflict because they're getting something from it or they got something from it. And then do they need to give it all up, the whole belief system, just because the leader of their particular group was bad? So I'm curious, maybe what we can do is start there. you start by uncovering information and knowing that one of the things for me that defines kind of uh, a cult is an inability to access information because most cults will tell you something terrible will happen to you. But if you talk to someone who has left or if you access information online, they will often tell you that, you know, that that information is gonna be false or those are not trustworthy sources. But suddenly, there's so much that's coming forward, so much that's getting revealed that people can't ignore it anymore. So what's that like for you? And what was that like for you when you were suddenly finding out things about the group that you were in?
2: You know, I think maybe maybe a great place to start to, to kind of build up to that is how the truth came out about Yogi Bhajim and Pre-HO, because I think mm-hmm. it was very much a a long, slow process. People knew about Yogi Bhajan's abuse and misconduct almost from the very beginning of his arrival in the United States in late 1968, but it only really passed a kind of point of no return earlier this year. Some of his earliest hosts in Los Angeles, they talked about his abuse and misconduct. In 1977, there were two, major pieces of writing, an article in Time magazine and a book published in India by a man named Trilochin saying uh, that exposed much of what was untrue about Yogi Bhajan's background. You had a large number of members who left one of the main communities in New Mexico in the 1980s. You had a whole series of lawsuits and scandals in the 1980s. They never really reached any kind of critical mass. In the 1990s, you had the first online forums run by ex-members to talk about 3HO. I think that was a a very decisive turn. The internet allowed people to communicate with each other, to find each other, to exchange information in a very new way. But that really didn't make any kind of noticeable change in 3HO or people's perception of 3HO. Even with the death of Yogi Bhajan in 2004, it really seemed like it would be business as usual, indefinitely. And I don't know if Stacey wants to, to pick up, you know, kind of how the momentum changed.
1: Well, sure. I mean, you know, I had, I had heard the rumors for years. You know, living in L.A., you would see members of this community around. I live in close proximity. So the 3 HOCs had a real presence here in Los Angeles. They, were, they had this very distinctive air about them, this kind of purity. And, and being in the yoga community, like I said, I had always heard this. So cut to February, March of this year, we're in lockdown and I get a, um, an email from a colleague or or text and she says, hey, have you heard about this memoir, Kremka, A White Bird in a Golden Cage? because she knew of my interest in in yoga and such. And so I spent a pandemic weekend on my couch in a Facebook group reading every single post. And mm-hmm. it was astounding, the revelations that were revealed during this mm-hmm. time. And so when Pamela's memoir was published, I believe it was the end of December, she self-published it. She, at the time when it came out, I think she has since had a birthday, she was 77 years old. So this is a woman in her later years reflecting back at a time, you know, over 30 years ago. It was written in a way that was very accessible to both people who are currently in the community and people who are outside the community. And I think that's key because as you mentioned, the idea of Questioning the doctrine, questioning the guru, questioning the teachers, questioning misconduct is met with lots of resistance. But here is this book that is written. It's actually quite well written. It's very relatable. It's it's about a woman who's seeking, who wants a family of her own, who wants to have a child. Anyway, so the point being is that the book allowed other women to speak. Women from that
0: generation. Okay, right. I mean, I think that there is something, as we'll talk about, that I'll talk actually a little bit about my interest in all of this in a moment. But I know that whenever there is a story that comes forward, especially as you're saying about this book, that is one where people can generalize it enough to their own experience within a religious community, within a relationship where you know, you're in a situation where you have your power stripped from you and your voice and taken away. And also just what you do with someone who feels ultimately entitled and also has the sort of zone that they've kind of concocted and crafted around themselves where people keep their secrets and uphold their kind of feelings of entitlement and that they can do whatever they want and get away with it. There are people who will be happy when the leader of theirs or their abusive partner of theirs is taken down for any reason. And sometimes though you have cult leaders who are taken down because of other things, because of tax evasion or which is often, you know, they're often taken down for the the thing that was the least of their crimes. But that was the only thing the law could kind of address that was tangible. But whatever it is, just to have justice just to have a sense that someone is noticing that someone's doing something wrong and someone is going to potentially stop them. It's very healing. And a lot of the people who have contacted me since, you know, Keith Ranieri from Nexium was brought up on charges and, you know, sent to jail for 120 years. People who are in groups or even in relationships with malignant narcissists are calling me and saying how healing it was that now there is legal precedent And also that someone had to pay a price because that was never their experience with the person who had wronged them. And they, as the victims, were the only ones who paid the price. So to have that reversed is really empowering.
2: You bring up a good point. The memoir happened at a specific time, and there were reasons why people were receptive to Pamela's memoir. Um, As Stacey mentioned, it's well-written, it's accessible, it's relatable. Mm -hmm. Ironically, Pamela had very high status within 3HO. So by being an ideal member, she can also serve as an ideal ex-member for people to listen to. Mm -hmm. But in 2020, we are part of larger movements of uh, things being exposed. So Mm -hmm. there's the Me Too movement and there's all the revealed scandals with high demand groups and new religious movements. And so I think the doubts that were there in the 70s, 80s, and 90s and 2000s, um, we're at a point where thankfully people are starting to listen to women and believe their stories when they come forward. Um, We've had public outings of Jerry Sandusky, Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein. We've also have all these guru scandals—Swami Vishnu Devananda, John Friend, Wild Wild Country was released. You have the Bikram scandals. So I think that the hesitancy of uh, that couldn't happen. You know, surely, surely they weren't doing this. I think so many things have come out that it's far easier for people to start listening to survivors uh, and start believing in what previously would have been unbelievable.
1: But I also think structurally in 3HO, you know, the status of women played a role in this additionally because there's this kind of interesting double talk, right? Women are elevated for being more spiritual and more holy, but at the same time, when they leave, they're called prostitutes and they're doing drugs on the street. Or if they don't do the, you know, right thing within their marriage, they're the ones that are punished. And so this kind of patriarchal structure is, you know, built into the system. And there was also the question that a lot of even the women who saw what was happening, they, I had first generation members say to me, well, I thought it was consensual. And then she said to me, but now I realize those power dynamics are not consensual. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're dealing with both the, the structure of the group and the changing of the times and this kind of perfect storm of the memoir and the pandemic and people feel safe behind their computers. They can tell their stories. And subsequently, after this, there were a series of Zoom calls. Where people shared these experiences, and for both Philip and I, and at least for me, also writing this piece, one of the biggest revelations that had been kind of bypassed was that there was a whole second generation of women that were also victimized by this group, and and young men, because the way that the family structures worked. They were encouraged to send their children away to boarding schools in India at very young ages. Right. And often these young women, when they graduated, were in put into arranged marriages with men much older. If they want, if the women wanted to go to college, the men, even the men, but if They were not allowed, you know, that was not really encouraged. I mean, there's like, of course, in every organization, there's like an elite hierarchical hierarchical structure. So some of them were allowed to, but if you were kind of rank and file, you didn't go to college. You went and worked for the 3HO businesses.
2: I think that's one of the biggest things I know for myself and for Stacey, and I think for for anyone that was paying close attention to 3HO over the last year is... Even the people who thought they knew a lot about 3HO, the number of abuses, uh, the details of the abuse was shocking, but also how systemic the whole structure was. You know, you have this spiritual religious structure, you have yoga, you have these fraudulent titles, you have businesses, you have boarding schools, you have all of these things. And when you step back, and I think the report by an branch only hints at this, it's really all connected. It's really, in many ways, at its heart, it's designed to facilitate abuse. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that Stacy's article really brought to the forefront very clearly, I think for the first time, is to show those connections and how you can't really partition off the abuse of women, the abuse of the children in the second generation, of the crimes, the legitimate businesses,
1: and just to clarify, when Philip refers to an olive branch, he's referring to an internal investigation that the Sirius Sing South Corporation um, contracted a group to look into these allegations of sexual yes. misconduct, and it is a stunning document. I reread it in preparation for today. And um, it is available online um, if anybody wants to look at it. They spoke to both defenders of Yogi Bhajan and reporters of harm. Mm-hmm. And it is really an incredible insight into the mindset when you talk about, Rachel, the idea of believing people and the way that that some of the people defend Yogi Bhajan, it's 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 very it's very um very illuminating saying things like, you know, the women coming forward have experienced abuse in their past, so they're triggered by this, so they're making it up. Or one of my one that really stuck out to me, this idea, well, maybe they have epigenetic trauma, you know. A lot of a lot of these women are Jewish. Maybe they have epigenetic trauma from the Holocaust. Um, so right. it, you know, it's just kind of interesting thinking. And there's also mm-hmm. the idea that he was the Saturn teacher, right? So, which I'm sure you've heard. So this mm-hmm. kind of bullying, bravado, you know, I'm going to toughen you up, keep up. So that allowed it to kind of skirt away too.
2: Back in 2012, the article that I wrote that talked about the origins of his yoga, I laid out uh, a case with a lot of evidence documentation as to why we could understand his claim titles and the claims he made for his form of yoga as fraudulent, as made up. And I didn't fully appreciate the consequences of that until this year, and especially the report by an olive branch. Where it's more than just, I made up a fancy title for myself. Well, Yogi Bhajan made up several. Those claims of spiritual authority were really the engine behind some of the worst abuses. Um, you see that mm-hmm. in the report. I did mm-hmm. this because he was the Mahan Tantric. I did this because he was the Siri Singh Sab. I let this happen because mm-hmm. he's a master of kundalini yoga. He must mm-hmm. have been... You know, this must have been operating on a different plane. And I think the quotes that Stacey mentioned about an olive branch, I think that really highlights how Yogi Bhajan was setting the rules to the game that he was playing and taking from. Uh, So many of the things that you read, those quotes, they're coming from him. He is telling them how a spiritual leader should act. And so when they look to his actions, they don't see anything wrong with it.
0: Mm, Right. Yeah. Well, I think there is a lot of power in redefining. So if, you know, a lot of groups will also will have their own definition for a cult, which is very clever. So when they're asked, is this a cult? Then usually cults have conjured up their own definition, which is perfectly kind of tepid, more like a sect. And that's not at all how I define it. And that's not at all what makes it destructive. But yeah, I think language plays a huge role in control and in deception and in also kind of laundering your image and making it seem so much more innocent. I think also coming up with these names is not just similar from other groups Going back to Keith Ranieri, I mean, because he's on people's minds, the fact that he called himself Vanguard and wanted people to call him Vanguard, L. Ron Hubbard wanted people to call him the Commodore, you know, I mean, just all these titles that give you the sense that this is a person who is on high, who has this title, who deserves it who's earned it as opposed to just grabbing it and calling themselves that because they happened to open up the dictionary and that word kind of popped out at them. And they thought, ooh, I like that. And then there are a lot of people who go along with things they shouldn't. And a lot of people go along with things even after they've noticed that there is a problem. I think there's this sort of no pain, no gain idea in some of these groups that's utilized to the point of abuse and also handicapping people because they think that it's for their benefit that they suffer in this way. And I'm curious about that. I'm curious about the suffering and how that was justified.
2: You bring two great points together that Yogi Bhajan not only claimed titles and authority that were special, but he also claimed suffering and a kind of like martyr complex that was special. When I interviewed Pamela years ago, she, that was one of the things that she commented on was he had a death wish. He kept talking about, like, I'm going to die. Someone's going to kill me. He always needed security around him. He talked about, I mean, there's no way to prove it, but he always said, like, I'm taking on your karma. I'm suffering from you. I Almost literally, you're hurting me by, you know, not getting up and doing your meditation. Oh, you snuck off and had a Snickers bar. Ouch. (laughs) Look at what you're doing to me. So that's a great way to deflect, you know, the obvious benefits that he was enjoying, his his status, and by extension, his abuse. Well, he deserves it, and he suffers so much, and he's probably doing this in a way we don't understand. And you see that in people who are still committed to him. You know, they'll say, like, you know, he wasn't enjoying himself when he was, if he was doing this abuse, he wasn't enjoying it. It was a a way to work, move energy, burn off karma, or we can't even understand what he was doing.
0: Right. And I want to just respond to that. And then I want to bring Stacey into this conversation just about justifying suffering. And I realized that I still haven't talked about how I got into this field. But first, I do want to say that I think that within a lot of groups, you know, they're going to mimic being in relationships with controllers, with a sociopath, with narcissists, because by and large, Those are the people who create these kinds of groups or where these kinds of offshoots of these groups go their own way. No one's watching what's happening, can't keep track of all of it. You know that there's their own kind of, well, kind of narcissistic playground, this very unfortunate toy store where they have this whole space unto themselves and they create their social rules. Everything is different and turned on its ear. One of the ways that people say that they were connected to someone who was abusing them and taking advantage of them was at first they were a bit scared and intimidated by that person, and that drew them in and made them feel overwhelmed but intrigued, and also that there was this sort of intermittent gratification. Sometimes the leader is happy with you and sometimes not. And if you felt that the leader was happy with you for certain things, then you would do them more. And if the leader was happy with you for working harder or devoting more of yourself, you would do those things. And there's a social system around you where people are working so hard and you think that's of the utmost value and that sacrificing so many things gets you to be smiled upon by the leader. and. You'll wait for those moments or work for those moments because they're all too rare and they become kind of magical. And I think sometimes people can get lost in that. People can start to feel that their worth is based upon how much they're working just to please that person and how much success they're having at pleasing that person. It's so important in those moments to step back, although it's hard, and, and to look at that And then also when that kind of intimidation and that motivation to work so hard stops working, it wears off a little. You're not so scared of that person and you don't feel you have to kind of listen to everything they're telling you to do anymore. They still don't want you to leave and they'll find another way to get you to stay. And usually manipulators will then switch over and work on your conscience. So if they think to themselves, okay, my intimidation tactics are no longer working. Mm, I can tell they're not working as hard just to please me. I'm going to show them how much I've suffered or how much I've suffered in my past, how much I've suffered for them, how much I've sacrificed, how much I've given up just to be this person and this teacher, how much I could have had, but instead how much I've given to them or how much I've had to tolerate. Them or just giving to them. And, you know, they come across as these people who are not fully appreciated or that they've been abandoned in the past or abandoned spiritually or whatever else would work. And then they will go in for the kill. And I thought I could trust you. And I thought you wouldn't be someone who would also abandon me or take me for granted or make me regret all the sacrifices I've made. So, It's really whatever works to continue them being able to be the puppet master, to pull one string until it stops actually having that kind of tension and stops working. And then they pull another string and it's kind of fascinating and really disturbing to watch. But when you're in it, you don't know that's what's happening. Most people haven't experienced these kinds of personalities before and they don't know they're being played in this way but especially by a spiritual leader. You really don't expect that. And so, Stacy, I'm curious to hear your feelings about all that.
1: Well, from my interviews, I feel like 3HO members look at themselves as a giant family. We're siblings of destiny is a term they use. Second generation Abuse survivors often say he was like my grandfather. He was like a god that we revered. So when it becomes family, too, I think it gets a lot more complicated. It also you don't question it because you don't know better, especially when you grow up in this community. There was also a lot of grooming of these young women. A lot of these people didn't have a lot of money. There was a lot of free labor required. And when they were compensated, it was like minimum wage or below. And so, for example, one woman I know, you know, when she was eight or nine years old, she was kind of plucked out. Let's take you on a shopping spree. They spend $1,000 on her and she gets some beautiful new dresses. And then she, you know, gets noticed that way. So that is a manipulation that went on under the guise of love and caring but it was really had an ulterior now we know it had an ulterior motive that kind of kept people around and that's like you be nice and then you be mad there was a lot of I also heard a lot of stories there was something called women's camp that happened every summer and people would gather and women would gather and there was a lot of berating. There was a lot of, you know, this is the way a woman needs to act. There were, there were strenuous, intense physical activity, epic heights. Also, young people learned how to use guns to defend themselves to the fact that, Phil, you know, Philip was saying, you know, I'm suffering my death wish. You know, um, one second generation person told me we learned how to use guns and Glocks and AK-47s because... You know, the world was going to end. So I'm not sure if I answered your question, but I'm just trying to point out that like the connections and the interpersonal relationships were more than just, it was a, it was like more of a family dynamic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I, I think you did certainly answer the question because I think what we're talking about is how people are able to have their critical thinking disengaged. And your critical thinking is your safety net. But if you're talked into kind of liking the people there, this is your family and that they love you and that these relationships are special, you put up with a lot, just like you put up a lot with your family, but also because there's this guise of protection and we care about you. And we're going to help you heal, and we're going to help you be happy. And we're also going to have this allegiance towards you. We're not going to let anything bad happen to you. But that said, the parenting
1: direction that they were given, particularly women, were encouraged to kind of disconnect from their nurturing instinct. It's almost like the opposite of attachment parenting. It's Mm detachment parenting. That's Mm -hmm. why the kids were sent away to India. There was child swapping, kids were taken from their own families, sent to other families who may not have been nice, equipped, or really cared to look after them. I just can't stress enough how, yes, the 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 sexual misconduct, the olive branch report, terrible, violent rape, sexual battery, but there's also this other thing going on too, where there's a whole generation of children that suffered as well.
2: If we go back to high school and like we remember the the two big dystopian novels that we all probably read, Brave New World in 1984, Mm -hmm. those are two ends of the same spectrum. Deep, natural bonds of affection aren't allowed in either. In Brave New World, it's all casual. It's all promiscuous. In 1984, it's just by force, you're prevented from having those relationships with other people and i think that's true of a lot of new religious movements it's either um you know whether it's um a prescribed promiscuity um or whether it's regulated or controlled or prevented romantic or familial bonds the result is the same and that's that's so true in 3HO you know with arranged marriages mm-hmm. um, with prescriptions for the most intimate moments that people have, you know, how to have sex with your spouse. That's prescribed. It's regulated, and the familial bonds of, you know, if you go through just the voluminous lectures and talks that Yogi Bhajan gave, he is constantly undermining people's sense of their own selves and their own ability to be parents to their own children. He's Mm -hmm. constantly saying, you're all screwed up because you're in America. American society is just a mess. You're all neurotic. Your parents screwed you up. And so that's, you know, you're chopping up the bonds that these first generation members have with their own families, let alone the fact that, you know, they're showing up for Christmas in all white clothing with a new name and they're saying Sat over their food. But then you have this undercutting of, you guys are so neurotic, you're going to screw up your kids. Your kids have a special destiny. And it's a re- it'd be a real shame if you passed your own neuroses on to your children. So there's this constant undercutting of these natural bonds. I mean, even if you're not the the most perfect parent in the world, I think the most essential okay. thing that we know is you're you're at least there with your kids. You're together, and that was taken away systematically.
0: One more thing before you go. I am truly grateful to Philip and to Stacy for their time talking with me as well as all their research and sharing of information and gathering people's stories so that the public can be informed and warned. We will have the second part of my conversation with them next week. I am so moved by this part of the story. That represents decades of disbelief. And the disbelief is actually in two directions that people inside the organization did not want to believe that their spiritual leader was doing anything he shouldn't be doing, things that were reprehensible, unconscionable, illegal, immoral, and doing things that are quite unspiritual, to say the least, and were not at all about religious devotion. In fact, they were quite the opposite and quite awful and selfish. And the other kind of disbelief is that it's sort of part of the reason that we don't hear these stories for decades and sometimes not ever. It's that people don't believe people's stories at times. And the people who have the stories sometimes know that. And so it makes them not come forward. Because once you've been injured, it's re-injuring to not be believed. If a person comes forward, that's usually not enough. Just one person, maybe two, to make an impression or to be believed. People may think, well, they have a personal issue here. They have a cross to bear or it's just anomalous or they're making it up or trying to get attention or even a score. That's why there's strength in numbers, and it's good to get other people along for the ride if you're going to come forward or make a complaint or expose a leader or a group in any way, if at all possible. It also just feels good to join forces with others and not be the lone voice. But moving beyond just the occurrences in 3HO, I want to talk about disbelief in general and this idea that there are certain people within the population who are just not believable, who are not taken seriously, who are not given the time or the attention or the sympathy or respect they should when they finally come forward. That's actually been the case for women over millennia and still continues in small ways and in big ways. And that plays a part here with things really going on for far too long, actually, in 3HO because the women were not believed I have heard a study that sometimes when people ask for directions and they ask a number of people and the woman in the group of people gives them the directions, then often they will sometimes look to a man to confirm that those directions are correct. And even if the man gives them the exact same directions, they'll say thank you to the man and follow what the man said again, even if it's really exactly the same. There was also another related study when I read that study that said that also women are more apt to say they don't know when they really don't know how to direct you somewhere and they don't want to waste your time, but that men are more apt to start answering and give you lots of details in the hope that they're right or at least right about part of it, but they want to seem like they know that they're in charge, that they have the information that you need, but they might actually not know. That's very interesting to me, and I hope things like that are interesting to you. I find people endlessly interesting. But going to other issues and bigger issues, women have very often not been believed and are not seen as credible and have been dismissed as quote unquote hysterical and have been dismissed as having their period. And that's why they're feeling emotional about something or upset about it. That's why. There are also so many medical issues. The ones that affect more women than men do not get funding, do not get explored, do not get medicated. And many women who are in pain for one reason or another, physical pain, are dismissed as exaggerating. They don't get relief. They don't get appropriate medical care or their care is delayed because they have to go from one doctor to the next to the next just to try to prove that they actually have a problem. And very often women are sent home and just told to relax or that it's hormones or it could be because they're depressed. There are also women who are stereotypically attractive, whatever that means to you within your culture. And when they talk about being raped, they're dismissed because they're attractive. And it's thought about them that it must be that they enjoyed the attention or were asking for it or were being provocative. And if a woman is also not stereotypically attractive, they're also not believed. Because if they tell people that they are raped, people also, again, this other study that I read, who are not stereotypically attractive, whatever that means within that culture, are not believed because they think that someone who ever raped them would not be attracted enough to them to do this, as though rape were ever about attraction or sex, because really it is just about the abuse of power. What's also true is that even when women have come forward and they are believed, it still doesn't mean that the person who did this to them pays any price. It still doesn't mean that For example, the professor gets fired, or it still doesn't mean that the politician or studio head gets fired. And very often, it's the women who suffer the consequences. And they are sometimes made to feel, of course, that none of this was worth it. It wasn't somehow worth it to come forward. There is so much that makes people stay silent. Other populations that are not believed often are teenagers. And with other recent shows that I've done or have been on that have been covering these abusive residential teen treatment centers, when these kids come out and have been traumatized, they are not believed very often because. They're seen as acting out kids, or maybe that's the way the adults needed to treat them in order for them to learn how to behave differently because they were so impossible. And they fight an uphill battle to be heard. People also who have special needs fight to be believed about abuses that they incur. And people who have psychiatric disorders are also dealing so often, unfortunately, it's horrible with a lack of respect for their experiences because it's dismissed and discounted as dissociation or paranoia. People also who are incarcerated are not believed when they talk about the abuses they are incurring while being incarcerated. And immigrant populations, on and on. And men as well. There are many men I've talked to who have not gone to the police when they have dealt with being abused by a partner or spouse Because they worry, and sometimes rightfully so, that a police officer investigating this or responding to it will say, you're so much bigger than this person that you say abused you, so I can't believe this. Or don't you know how to fight back? Or why did you let this happen to you if you're a strong man? So the point of all of this is that when somebody tells you a story, it doesn't always mean that it's true. I know that. But if you can, you want to err on the side of an assumption of innocence, an assumption of credibility until further notice, innocent till proven guilty. Because if you start with an assumption that the person is lying and they know that's how you feel, then you cause two issues right there. One is you make someone regret ever working hard to get up the courage to bring something to you that is potentially shameful for them or embarrassing or upsetting, really upsetting to talk about. And of course, you also make them regret that they ever trusted you. But additionally, and here's the second part and the most important part, I think, is when you immediately discount someone's story because you judge them or you've been socialized to judge certain people or certain populations or certain ages or certain genders, you actually make sure that you never get the real story. And if you care about the person, you should care about their story. You should care about the truth. And the reason you won't ever get to the truth is because they will stop crying. They will give up because you've insulted them. You've put them down. You've shamed them by not believing them. And then what you do is you protect the perpetrator. You protect them from becoming exposed and having the truth revealed. So remember that when you go to an immediately disbelieving response, like, oh, come on, or look who's talking, or why should I believe you? Or that can't be right. Or are you sure? Uh, You're just exaggerating. Or you wanted it, or you imagined it you're just trying to get attention, then even though these are kind of throwaway comments to you, you are in that moment potentially getting in the way of not only that person getting justice, but many other people who were the victims in this situation also getting justice. Never, ever let your prejudices be used to help a rapist or an abuser of any kind to get away with it your immediate disbelief and dismissal of people's stories in that important moment is that powerful. And I have to assume, or I hope I can assume, that that's not what you intended to do in that moment. Please remember this message. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download the show for free on NPR's Radio Public App, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.